Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. begin and most folks think it started in 2001 back in April it started a long time before that when I was a teenager I had a a call from God when I was 17 years old and I I didn't really want to follow it but I thought somehow I probably would be so I asked my mentor pastor Andy Wygant how do you know when you're called to be a pastor and he said when you're called to be a pastor you have a vision of the church And I never forgot that. It it was sort of in the back of my mind during the five years that I was trying to uh, hide from God and not follow his call to be a pastor. But all along, I would read scriptures. And one that really struck me was Acts 2, 42 to 47. In that passage, it talks about how the the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. So they were together and they they learned God's word and they lived it out. And we're told that signs and wonders happened in that church, that they shared what they needed with each other and that they had the goodwill of all the people. And when we started New Life, that was one of the things that I wanted. I wanted a church that would be like that New Testament church. And we're told in the last verse of Acts 2, 42 to 47, that God added daily the number of those who were being saved. And and that's really been our focus since we started New Life. It used to be sharing the new life of Jesus Christ with the world one person at a time. We added at the 15th anniversary just this year to share, grow, and live the new life of Jesus Christ with the world one person at a time. But my focus has always been on that one lost sheep. As Jesus told uh, the parable of the, the lost sheep, that the shepherd had 100 sheep and one was lost. And he left the 99 in the fold and went out to look for the one. And since New Life began, we've always been looking for that one person. And here we are, uh, 15 years later, and we're in our first building. We're looking to build a, a new building, and that's why the Yes Initiative is, is happening. And, uh, but we've never forgotten that it's one person at a time that comes to Jesus. And, and we're always seeking ways that we can reach that one person. So the new building, the Children's Nurture and Discipleship Center, is being constructed to reach children. And, and not just children, but as it says, the Discipleship Center, to equip people, uh, adults who have already trusted Jesus, so that we can go out into our workplaces, our homes, the places we hang out, our schools, and, and we can tell people about Jesus. And not just tell them, but share uh, his life, his love, his, his truth with people. And, and it's becoming, I believe, more and more important than ever that we do that because we live in a world that has decided there isn't any truth and, and, and it's, really, it's really messed things up. And so as we gather together and the weekends to worship, as we gather in small groups in our homes and throughout the community, and now as we're gonna be able to expand our children's ministry, and not just on the weekends, but through the week, we're gonna be able to have so much more space uh, so that we can reach those lost ones. And then as they get found, so that we can all grow up together to become the people that God created us before the foundation of the universe. Uh, We're so excited, Uh, Nancy and I are so excited to see what God is doing and what he has done is certainly amazing, but we believe 
uh, the best years of new life are ahead of us. If Jesus tarries, if he doesn't return soon, we believe we're gonna see thousands of people come through the doors and all different kinds of doors, whether it's the worship center, whether it's the children's nurture and discipleship center, whether it's the doors of our homes in the community and region around us, we're gonna see people who right now are, are feeling lost, broken, hopeless, come to receive the, the new life of Jesus Christ uh, with the world. Uh, and we're gonna see everything happen in a, in a way that we haven't yet seen because of the faithfulness of so many people. And, and that's why we're saying yes to uh, this opportunity over the next three years to provide that facility, which will provide opportunities for our mission to be fulfilled in ever-increasing ways. I'm Chris Marshall. I'm Nancy Marshall. And, and we, we said, said yes. yes. Hi, and welcome to New Life Online. Uh, my name is Mark Lutz. I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life Christian Ministries. And if you're joining us today online, we just want to thank you uh, for taking the time to check things out, to click a few buttons, to, to watch a sermon or watch a message here on our website. We're super excited that you decided to join us. This morning, I'm going to be talking, it might not be in the morning for you, but it is for me. We're going to be talking uh, about the, the fourth part in a series called Just Say Yes here at New Life. And you saw Pastor Chris and Nancy Marshall just a few moments ago. Pastor Chris and Nancy have said yes to Jesus in their lives over and over and over again. And as they said yes to this yes initiative, it's just one more opportunity for them after a long list of times that they have said yes to Jesus. In fact, 15 years ago, uh, Pastor Chris and Nancy and their daughters, Emmy and Abby, sat down together and prayed about a new church. And they said yes to Jesus in those moments, and shortly after that, new life was born. It's been because of Pastor Chris's leadership alongside Nancy that they have said yes over and over again that have led us to where we are today. And it's an amazing thing to be here in such a small rural community and yet to be serving and being able to attend such an awesome church here at New Life Christian Ministries. If you would like to learn a little bit more about that, I'm just gonna give kind of a shameless plug about Pastor Chris's newest book. He just wrote a book called uh, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Beach. You can find it on amazon.com for $15. And uh, you can read that book and you can actually have the opportunity for Pastor Chris to be sitting down in the form of a book, sitting down in your living room with you and telling you the story of New Life and how God has worked in his life and orchestrated things in his life to bring about the church. And also just how he's listened to the beckoning of the Holy Spirit on his heart since he was a young kid. And how those moments as he's listened to Jesus in his life has changed his life forever. And in turn is actually changing our lives as well. So I'd encourage you to check that out. So we've been in this series called Just Say Yes. And before this series in part one, we talked a little bit about giving our best yes to Jesus? How do we go about really being all in? And then the next week, we got a chance to talk about the cost of saying yes, because there's always a cost associated with saying yes to something. 
And then the following week, the cost of saying no, where we learned about how if we say no to Jesus, we begin to be responsible for our very daily needs. Whereas when we say yes to him, he's responsible for our daily needs. Today, I'm going to have the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about the blessing of saying yes. So what is the blessing of of saying yes to Jesus in our lives? This side of eternity, we know that there's an eternal blessing to saying yes to Jesus. That's eternity with him. That's salvation through God's son when he died on the cross. However, there's an earthly blessing that goes along with saying yes to Jesus and being all in. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Now to talk about that, we want to look at the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, but I want to give you a little bit of background about what was going on in the area of Corinth at that time. See, Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. It's actually a letter that he wrote to a church in an area, a city called Corinth. Now, Corinth was kind of like our modern-day Vegas. So, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth type of an atmosphere. So they grew up in one of the most pagan cultures uh, that any of the first century churches had. So Paul had gone around and planted multiple churches um, in different cities during his lifetime, but the church in Corinth was kind of uh, one of his favorites. And on top of it being one of its favorites, it was also in one of uh, the most brutal and pagan cultures that he had planted any of the churches in. Now, alongside being in one of the most difficult places to be a church, which actually they weren't called churches or Christians yet, they were called followers of the way, uh, they were given immense gifting. Now, some of the churches didn't have this, but the church in Corinth had a lot of financial blessing. They had a lot of spiritual blessings in terms of spiritual gifting that was showing up inside their church, inside their following. However, in addition to that, uh, they they were also blessed with a lot of new believers. Now, not all the other churches were blessed that way. In fact, there was a church that was planted by a man named Peter in a city called Jerusalem. This was the first church or the first grouping of the way to be planted. Now, Peter had started in Jerusalem on Pentecost, and uh, he went out into the streets of Jerusalem. He began to preach. 3,000 people came to know Jesus that day, and the first followers of the way that gathering was born. Now, this gathering had a lot of significant issues, one of them being really a big financial hurdle to overcome. The reason for that was because the Jews in particular disliked the Christians, and because the epicenter of Jewish power was Jerusalem, they were trying to stomp out the way in the city. So they would do things like uh, drag away somebody's father and throw them in prison, uh, seize their property or their businesses. They would stone people in the streets or um, go out and arrest them and then murder them. So there was all kinds of things happening to the Jewish people that were causing them to have a lot of difficulty coming up with the basic financial resources to provide for their following and also to provide for the people who were losing their homes and losing their livelihoods, losing their fathers, which was another form of losing your livelihood during that time because women weren't able to provide for their families. And so the church in Corinth, we find out in the first letter that Paul wrote to them, gathered together financial resources, gave sacrificially and generously of themselves And they sent on those financial resources to the church in Jerusalem. Now we also learn at the beginning of this letter uh, that this had spurred on another church, a church in a place called Macedonia. And that church was spurred on to gather their financial resources and also give it to the church in Jerusalem. You see, because whenever we begin to gather and increase our level of faithfulness, especially when it comes to finances, but when it comes to any walk or area of life, other followers of Jesus are encouraged and challenged to increase their level of faithfulness as well. They want to rise 
to our level of faithfulness. And this is something that they saw happening in the first century church. It was really never God's intention for the church to be self-serving or um, to focus inwardly or only upon themselves, but instead for a network of churches, all churches, to work together in unison to accomplish one goal. And that was bringing God's kingdom here to earth and everywhere that we live, work, and play. So anyway, this sets up what we're about to hear about here because Paul is on his way back to the church in Corinth and he sends on ahead of him a letter along with a messenger because the church in Corinth is preparing to gather another financial gift to give to the church in Jerusalem. Now Paul doesn't want the church to be embarrassed by not having it prepared. So he sends somebody ahead to prepare that gift and then whenever he arrives there, he plans on gathering that, meeting and spending some time with the church in Corinth to encourage them and teach them and raise them up and then take that financial gift with him back to the church in Jerusalem. So that's where we pick up in chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, and it says this. Paul says, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God as a result of your ministry. They will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. Now when we look at this passage, we actually see two things that Paul points out, a two-way blessing that Paul points out to us here. And it's actually outlined very clearly in verse 11. The first thing that will happen as a product of this church in Corinth, giving sacrificially and generously of the financial resources that they have been given, the first thing that's going to happen is that they will be blessed so that they can be even more generous. So the blessing of generosity to the generous is that they will get an opportunity to exercise a deeper level of faith and they'll get the opportunity to be even more generous than they have been historically. Now, the next part of that blessing is that people will receive this blessing and they will be thankful. And they won't attribute their thankfulness to the people in Corinth, but instead the church in Jerusalem will attribute the generosity of the people in Corinth to God himself. So God will get glory and the church in Corinth will get an opportunity to deepen their level of faithfulness and become more generous in the future with the financial blessings that God will eventually give them. Now this points out a couple of really interesting things because there's some things that Paul doesn't say here. Like for example, Paul doesn't say if you give generously, God will give you everything that you want. He doesn't even say that if you give generously, God will pour out a rich blessings on you that are financial, that are beyond your wildest dreams. He doesn't point out even that the church in Jerusalem will thank the people in Corinth for their generosity. Instead, he points out something very basic and that is that the blessing of generosity to the generous is the opportunity to be more generous. And, and then he also points out that people will attribute their generosity to God himself. They won't even be thanked for it. They will not even gain credit for it. Paul also doesn't point out something really important, and that is that because you have given once and you've spurred other churches to give, that this second time of generosity is not important. In fact, it's even more important. Because after they've been generous once, there's an expectation that they will continue to be generous and even more generous 
into the future. So there's a strange expectation that although they had given once, this next gift will not be less generous. In fact, this next gift will be even more sacrificial. So when Paul shows up to receive it, it's not that there will be more finances there, but instead that it would be more sacrificial and more generous for them to give the second time than what they had done the first time that Paul had come to receive a gift for the church in Jerusalem. So this brings up all sorts of interesting things, but the first side of that blessing that I really want to talk about, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but a little bit of time, is the blessing of generosity on those who receive it. Now, I really don't need to sell you on this, because if you're watching this online and maybe you don't attend New Life, or, or you're watching this online but you do attend New Life, then if you have served in any capacity inside the church or even in other ministries or other organizations that are helping or assisting people and giving generously, you don't have to be convinced that the blessing of generosity on those who receive it is a good thing. No, you've seen it happen. So for example, for me, I've seen kids who couldn't go to a youth retreat, who because of the generosity of the very people in this church were able to have a scholarship to go to a youth retreat, and there they met Jesus for the first time. In fact, I came back from a youth retreat just last weekend, and I had this awesome opportunity because every one of my kids in my particular cabin needed help. They needed help getting there financially. In fact, there was one particular kid who just showed up on the day of. He showed up on the day of and decided to go with us. He didn't have the money there to be able to go, but because of the generosity of people in this church, he was able to. And now a kid that I've built a relationship with since he was in sixth and seventh grade, I was able to have a huge breakthrough during a cabin time with him as we talked about his life and what's been going on. And I was able to encourage him and challenge him in the Lord. None of that would have been possible if it hadn't been for the generosity of others. I've seen that happen in the lives of children's ministry where you walk into a children's ministry environment and you get to see the eyes of young children who are inspired and awestruck as they hear about the very promises of God for the very first time. I've seen it happen as we have cared for people here at New Life where there was a family who had, had not seen a happy holiday in a very long time. But because of the generosity of people here, we're able to experience a happy Thanksgiving or a happy Christmas or, or a fun and enjoyable Easter because of the people here, because we've provided meals or gifts for their family. So if you don't know what that looks like, then I just have to challenge you. Get out there and start serving in some way. Give sacrificially at least of your time and your talents and your touch. And we're going to continue to talk about treasure, but when you give of your time and your talents and your touch in terms of serving, when you go out and you actually become a youth leader or a children's ministry leader or, or you help deliver meals or, or you pray for somebody, when you begin to experience that and you give of those three parts of our treasure, time, talents, and touch, you begin to see the effects of generosity. And I won't have to sell you on it anymore. You won't have to hear an inspiring story because you'll actually see those inspiring stories unfold. Now the other side of this is the significantly more difficult part because the blessing of the generous is really life-changing faith. And that's really hard for us because we want the blessing of generosity if we're going to be generous, if we're going to give sacrificially, for God to give us material blessings back. And we want those things in abundance. But oftentimes that's not really how it plays out. In fact, our world is very, very full of stuff, and God has told us through his word that the chief rival in our lives, and we're going to look at this a little bit later, to him and worshiping him is worshiping our things. The chief rival is worshiping our things. 
Now, I'm somebody personally who loves things. I love possessions. I love toys. I love gadgets. I love video games. I, I love new technology. You see, some of you may be listening to this, and you're the type of person who you get a lot of security and a lot of fulfillment, happiness even, out of uh, another $100 in the bank account or a little bit more money put away towards retirement. Now, we all use money no matter which side we're on, whether you're like me and you love things or you're like uh, someone who maybe is a little bit more like my wife, actually, and, and you love security. We use money for one purpose oftentimes, and that purpose is to gain fulfillment and happiness. And we look for fulfillment and happiness in the wrong places because God promises to give us joy, purpose, and fulfillment, but we search for those things in money, whether it's through security or through things. And the truth of the matter is, oftentimes, we on either side of that spectrum, whether you seek security through money and that makes you happy, or you seek things through money and that makes you happy, like me, we oftentimes can look at the other side of the equation and we can look at the people who want to save if we're a of someone who likes to purchase things or someone who wants to purchase things if we like to save money, and we can look at them and say that I'm more generous than they are. And so we oftentimes compare ourselves to them because realistically, finances have a hold of our heart. And I know that because finances so often have a hold on my heart. Now, I hate shopping for practical things. I don't like shopping for food. I like gadgets and toys. I like things that give me that warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart when I come home. I like bringing a new thing open home and, and opening it up and being excited and giddy about this new possession that I have. And oftentimes when I've had a bad day, I am really strongly encouraged to go and purchase something new to make me feel better because I am oftentimes look to gain fulfillment from the world of things rather than the word of God. And like I said, I don't know what side of the spectrum you're on, but I'm sure you can identify a time in your life when you went to money and possessions to buy you, purchase you, or secure your happiness, joy, even purpose. And here's the thing. Money and things, we're not created for those. In fact, they're created for us. Jesus is super clear in his word that money and things are created for us to further his kingdom, not the opposite way around. And so often money and things end up chaining us down and preventing us from experiencing the kingdom. Now I know that because of a story that Jesus tells us. And he tells us this story um, in the book of, almost lost my thing here, in the book of Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. That's an amazing story of a young man. I'm gonna read it to you. It says this, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now pause, this young man is an incredible guy, right? Because this is how we want every youth ever to come to us. We want every youth ever in youth ministry or children's ministry to come to Jesus on their hands and knees, saying, Master, Jesus, Lord of my life, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I find salvation? How can my life be changed? It starts off awesome. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, he says, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone and honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. So this young man has not only come to Jesus in the right posture and humility, but in addition to that, he's been obedient. 
He's been obedient to what he's had up to this point. And he's coming to Jesus saying, I've done all these things. Another awesome example of a young man who wants to have his heart wholeheartedly following God. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is one, still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, says God has never given us finances to raise, never money to, to raise our standard of living. Instead, he's given us money to raise our standard of giving. He also says very clearly in his book that although we cannot take it with us, finances, we can send it on ahead. And that's what Jesus was telling this young man. He recognized that money has his heart. So go sell everything that you have, send it on ahead of you, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. You can't take your finances, your richness, your gadgets with you after this life, but you can send them on ahead of you when you get rid of them and give them away in this life to help others and to further the kingdom. It says that this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and asked his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them, but Jesus said again, Dear children, it is hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently. Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. You see, this rich young man was given the same offering as all the disciples were. Jesus said to him, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor. But the really key phrase there after that was, and then come follow me. You see, this would have really been significant in the eyes of his followers because there was two men who were on the beach with their father fishing one day. They had thrown their nets in on one side of the boat after Jesus had told them, and they brought up a catch so large, even after fishing all night, they had caught nothing. They brought up a catch so large, they had to call their other buddies over and have their boat help them bring the fish in. And it almost sunk both of their boats. After this, Jesus said, come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And these four men left behind their father in the boat to come and follow Jesus. In fact, there was another man, and it's interesting, this man eventually became known as Matthew. He wrote one of the Gospels. He was sitting at a tax collector's booth. This is a man who had sold out to the Roman authorities that were ruling Jerusalem and Israel at the time. He was a Jew who was collecting taxes for Caesar. He was not well-liked. In fact, he, he lived and worked with a lot of people who were not very well-liked. They were Jews who had sold out, and then they had began to indulge all of the pleasures that the Roman Empire could offer them. In fact, Jesus encountered this young man sitting at his tax collector's booth. He said, come follow me. He got up and left his tax collector's booth. These men had left behind their families, their livelihoods. They left behind their possessions. They had left behind everything in the pursuit of Jesus when he said, come follow me. This is the same beckoning that this rich young ruler receives, yet he leaves with his head hung. It makes me think about maybe all the times that God has looked at me and said things like, Mark, come and follow me, but I was too chained to my possessions to leave them behind to follow Jesus. I could have gone, but there were things I was unwilling to give up 
follow him. You see, this young man could have experienced Pentecost, the birth of the church. He could have been a church planter. Who knows what would have happened if this man would have sold his possessions and followed Jesus or just said, come follow you, sell my possessions. I give them away right now. They're yours. Use them however you want them. I am following you, Jesus. How often has Jesus asked that of us? And we've turned and walked away with our heads hung because the sacrifice of worldly things that he's asked of us have been too great. So we've been unable to do it. Hmm. See, life-changing faith in Jesus, it starts beyond our comfort zones. It's outside of our financial security. It starts in opposition to all of our narcissistic spending patterns. Life-changing faith in Jesus starts beyond us. Chris said in one of our early messages that what's really happening when we're talking about all this stuff is there's a war going on between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. And each day we make decisions that show that we have allegiances either to the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. And they're in opposition with one another. And when we know Jesus and the Holy Spirit has come into our lives, our job is to walk away from the kingdom of self and walk to the kingdom of God. And when we give up and surrender fully to him, then we have given up the kingdom of self so that we may follow the kingdom of God. See, God said this all before Jesus ever came to the earth. He just said it to the people of Israel in a different way. And I'm gonna look at that in Exodus 20, verses three. It's very simple and short. It just says this. You must not have any other God before me. You must not have any other God before me. After that, he says you must not have any idols and you know, guys, I realize that our world is full of idols, and they not, may not be these pagan shrines that we bow down to and make sacrifices on and burn incense like the Israelite people did. However, realistically, although we may not bow down and worship or sing songs to our idols on Sunday morning or on Saturday night or whenever it is that you go to church, the reality is that our idols are oftentimes worshiped in our bank statements in our receipts, and in our retirement plans. Our idols, as American Christians, specifically are oftentimes, they find their worship in our bank statements, in our receipts, and in our retirement plans. Now I say that with conviction because honestly, my idols find their worship in my receipts because I like to purchase things. And maybe like me, you also have a pile of receipts at home they look a lot more like the kingdom of self than they do the kingdom of man, the kingdom of God. And when you look at those things, you begin to realize that where you have been giving your efforts, your finances, your resources, your treasure to has not been to the kingdom of God, but instead you have been saving up, hoarding or purchasing things for the kingdom of self, which dies at the end of this life. See, Matthew said this, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. No, you cannot serve both God and money. Put it another way, Jesus calls us to nothing less than total surrender, surrender of self, surrender of possessions, surrender of ambitions. Jesus does not ask for part of us. In fact, the blessing of Generosity to the generous is that Jesus asks for all of us. All of us. And it leads us to life-changing, altering, never 
be the same again. Faith. You see, I think Jesus would say it this way, that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for us to cling to our things and still enter the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus told us that we were commanded to lift our cross. He says this in Matthew. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what does it benefit for you to gain your whole world but to lose your own soul? Is anything worth more to you than your soul? Jesus commands us to lift our cross. It's not a request. It's a matter of total surrender of our life. Maybe to finally phrase it one last way, I think that Jesus would say to us or say to me, Mark, you can't possibly fit through the eye of a needle with all of your possessions. You cannot cling to your things and lift your cross. You cannot cling to your things and lift your cross. If you want to be surrendered to me, if you know me, if you love me, if you care about the kingdom, if you want to serve me, if you want life, fulfillment, more than anything that you could ever ask or imagine, I am the light of the world. And Mark, if you want it, you can't cling to your things or your security and still lift your cross. And I think he says the same thing to every other follower of Jesus. As we encounter Jesus, he says, you cannot cling to your things and still lift your cross. You can't serve the kingdom of self and also serve the kingdom of God. It just is an impossibility. You see, the blessing of generosity, really, it's not getting more stuff. It's not pats on the back. It's not recognition. It's not power. It's not the ability to, to change people's opinions on things. It's not the ability to sway the congregation or affect the politics of a, of a follow, grouping of followers of Jesus. It's none of those things. In fact, when we believe that generosity will purchase us something, it stops being generosity altogether. No, the blessing of generosity to the life of the generous is life-changing faith in Jesus. That's it. Because after you've given once and you've given sacrificially and you've been generous, God will give you more. Not to raise your standard of living, but instead to raise your standard of giving. In fact, he gives opportunities to the generous not to pad their bank accounts or buy more things, but he gives it to them for an opportunity to become even more generous. That they would give more that they would live off of less, that they would invest more in eternity. We cannot take it with us. We can send it on ahead. And Jesus is saying, do you realize what the blessing is? If you've been generous, if you've been generous with just a small amount, I will give you more so that you can invest more, not in this world, but so that you can invest more in eternity, in people's lives being changed, so that you can send more on ahead. Oftentimes we get this polluted view that says because I've given once sacrificially and God has blessed me with material things or with finances, it's mine. What a tragedy. Because he's saying, it's not the purpose I gave it to you. I gave it to you for the kingdom. 
the return on your finances and how you give sacrificially is so much greater eternally than it is in a stock portfolio. And understand, I'm not saying savings or, or retirement funds are a bad thing. I don't believe that at all. I have those things. But when we go to them to seek fulfillment and happiness and purpose, it pollutes our lives and it prevents us from ever lifting our cross and it condemns us to be chained in the kingdom of self, never to climb to the eye of the needle and to enter the kingdom of man, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of God. Because that's really where we're aiming for. That's really going to take us to our commitment today. It's this. I will prayerfully consider participation in the Yes Initiative this week. If you're listening online, you may not know what the Yes Initiative is. It's an opportunity to build a new children's nurture and worship center. Now, my wife and I began to pray about saying yes a couple of months ago, and we gave our commitment and our gift at the advanced uh, time, the advanced gift a couple of weeks ago. When we looked at the numbers, I'll be honest with you, they didn't work out. This isn't a convenient time for somebody who's 28, 26 to be giving more money away every month above and beyond what we already give because we want to start a family. And to be honest with you, when we sat down and we looked at the finances, and I don't do them, my wife does, she said, Mark, if we have to go to one income, something miraculous is going to have to happen because we don't have the money to make it. And I said, I think if we're faithful, I think if we're faithful and we give sacrificially, God will never let us go without what we need. Something amazing happened. My wife sat down about a week ago. She had a break at school. She was sitting down and running through our finances and she reworked our budget. She sent me a text. She said, I don't know how this happened, but I have the same numbers and we're gonna be okay. I'm not working with any more money. In fact, I'm working with less money. Not only are we giving more, but I'm working it off of one income. And suddenly it was like, we can pay the mortgage and we can pay the bills. We can keep food on the table. We can provide for ourselves and a family. Now those numbers didn't work out before we said yes. But after we said yes, suddenly those numbers worked out. And for me, I'm sick and tired of being chained down to the kingdom of self. I personally am ready for life-changing faith. I personally am ready to see God move. And I want that more than I want the new Apple Watch. I want that, I want to see God move more than, I I want more money in our savings account. I, I want to see God move more than I want to have a new car or a bigger home or more luxuries. I want to see God move. And when I raise a family more than having them in the right school district or having them have everything. I want them to experience Jesus moving in their lives. I want them growing up knowing that God has provided for their family. Not because I was incapable, but because we depended upon our Father. And so I don't know where you are, but if you're listening online, this Yes Initiative's probably come to an end. We've already given our advanced gifts and our gifts on a weekend. But there's a button on our website, on our main page, called Say Yes, or the Yes Initiative. And there you can go and you can participate with us in giving of your treasure, in giving sacrificially, above and beyond what you already do, so that you can see kingdom, the God's kingdom come to earth, so that you can begin that first step in saying yes. And I want you to know, I'm not interested in your money. 
God doesn't need your money. He has everything stored. He has all the gold stored in a warehouse somewhere in heaven. His streets are paved with gold. Our streets with asphalt. He doesn't need your money to build his church or his kingdom. He doesn't need any of our finances to build the church in the next building. God's never asked for our finances. He's always wanted our hearts. And he just knows that money is a tool that oftentimes becomes a God. So my prayer for us is that we'll take this commitment seriously. Then as we go throughout our lives, that we will really prayerfully consider not just giving to the Yes Initiative and participating there, but in giving God our hearts, saying no to the kingdom of self and yes to the kingdom of God, and to see our lives changed. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this opportunity that I've had to just talk with or open a conversation with anyone who's gotten the opportunity to log online and watch. I pray, Father, that you would change our lives and our attitude towards treasure and that we would be a people who send it ahead of us and that we would not be a people who hoard it or worship it this side of eternity. Amen.